Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you've joined us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Glad you're here. We're sponsored today by NetSuite by Oracle, netsuite.com slash martini. Much more on that in a little bit. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And, uh, Jim, this isn't one of the martinis, but uh, I've noticed, and I noticed it during the game last night. uh, Congratulations to LSU, by the way. that Vince Vaughn's in trouble today because he uh, shared a moment in the luxury box with the president last night, and apparently since he didn't dump nachos on him or slap him across the face, that that he has to go. Uh, the cancellation effort is uh, underway, so I don't think it's worth a, a full martini, and we spent a whole martini on Ricky Gervais's uh, beautiful backlash to woke culture last week. But uh, any, any particular thoughts on uh, Vince Vaughn being in the crosshairs of the SJWs? Yeah. First of all, Vince Vaughn, if you're listening right now, you're money, baby. You're so money, you don't even know how money you are. Um, you know, I, I, he's kind of been hinted that he's either libertarianish or kind of leans to the right uh, a couple times before now. I like him. I don't think you should be running around towards actors with a political axe to grind because if that were the case, those of us on the right wouldn't have much to watch. <laughs> um, but the other thing also I would note is that, you know, wait, 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 apparently he was in the box and he shook hands with the president. Yes. I have a lot of beefs with this president. If I were invited to the White House and had to shake his hand, I would shake his hand. I'm not, you know, like I don't, whatever you think of the president, it always makes sense to respect the office. Otherwise, this turns into this endless, you know, you end up yelling at people and throwing food at them and all this other crazy behavior we've seen. And let me put this out to everybody who's really upset this morning. Folks, if you could forgive Vince Vaughn for the remake of Psycho. <laughs> late 90s he'd just become a star from swingers he had been in the the jurassic park film that almost everybody instantly forgot and uh uh they decided to remake psycho which probably wasn't such a great idea but then they decided it was gonna be a shot for shot remake of psycho it wasn't even gonna be a reinterpretation it was just to be you know Anne hesh and other actors acting out the scenes framed and looking exactly as they were and it's one of those things like you don't need to do that because they already made Psycho. Um, <laughs> so I hope, hopefully Vince Vaughn is fine with that little bit of ribbing there. You know, a lot of people would say, what about the second season of True Detective? I actually kind of like the second season of True Detective, at least the beginning. So anyway, Vince Vaughn, you know, this is in a long history of things Vince Vaughn has done wrong. This doesn't even crack the top 10. You have to respect him most of all for pulling off one of the great sports upsets of all time when Average Joe's beat Globo Jim in the dodgeball <laughs> final. <laughs> You had to get the Ocho to watch it live, but uh, it was an impressive thing. You know, here's a here's a quick admission, and I guess this didn't turn out to be so quick here as our teaser in the beginning. But uh, one of my most embarrassing gaffes ever happened while watching the actual Psycho. Uh, my wife and I rented it. This is back when you got uh, Netflix by mail. I guess you still can, mm. but I'm sure those, not... those those DVDs that never broke in the mail. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So it was at the end of a very long week. It was Friday night, and I was kind of passing in and out as I was as I was watching it. And um, so you get to the end, and if you haven't seen Psycho, I'm sorry, I'm going to kind of ruin the end here for you. But uh, so so the police come in and they see what's really happened here uh, with uh, Anthony Perkins and everything, and they say this is clearly a case of matricide. And of course, you're at the Bates Motel, and I turn to my wife and I go. He didn't kill her with a mattress. <laughs> and that has become a family joke the rest of the way. I do know what matricide is. I just wasn't firing on all cylinders that night. So uh, 
Happens to everybody. All right, let's move on to our good martini now, Jim. And OJ did a knife aside. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Jury found him not guilty. Mean joke on my part. <laughs> oh, well, it's uh, it's getting down to crunch time here in the Democratic campaign, and the gloves are coming off. Uh, Elizabeth Warren trying to go after Bernie Sanders, who's having a little bit of a surge now. We'll see if it lasts into the actual voting. But Sanders is doing better in some of the early states and in the national polls. And uh, Elizabeth Warren is not. And uh, so she has uh, released an accusation. And, Jim, you chronicle it in the jolt. Here's the uh, the story as you quote it. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts said on Monday night that Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont told her in 2018 he did not think a woman could win the presidency. Ms. Warren's description of the comment from a private one-on-one meeting represents a remarkable salvo at her leading liberal rival in the 2020 race just three weeks before the caucuses. Mr. Sanders vehemently denied making the remark earlier on Monday and accused the Warren campaign staff of lying about it in a statement intended to refute a news report by CNN that relied on anonymous sources. The New York Times and other outlets confirmed the CNN report Monday afternoon while the Warren campaign initially declined to comment. And so, uh, Jim, Elizabeth Warren uh, had been riding high earlier in this campaign. Not so much now. She's kind of bobbing along the threshold uh, of of where you need to be in Iowa. You know, it's just a shame that Elizabeth Warren hasn't been uh, the most truthful person along the way. So uh, you might want to cast a smidge of doubt on what she's saying here. You know, for all the listeners out there who are asking, why did Jim just make a reference to O.J. Simpson? Because it's a nice segue into another surprise (laughs) ambush where somebody gets stabbed in the back. So here's the thing. So the picture where you are with Elizabeth Warren, let's assume that her account of this is accurate, which is a really big assumption. As one person put it, this is one of those weird stories where you could very easily believe he said it. You could very easily believe she's lying about it at the same time. Could he have said that women, a woman would have a tougher time beating Trump? Yeah, that's a pretty, you know, I could see him saying it. And it's not, you don't have to be a raging sexist to have that illusion. Hillary Clinton said that being a woman, she thinks, hurt her in the last time around. Uh, You know, maybe there is enough uh, unexpressed, uh, you know, closeted, so to speak, sexism in the electorate that they wouldn't vote for a woman to beat uh, over Trump. But then having been said, Hillary Clinton, who was a woman, and a pretty darn flawed one at that, came within about 80,000 votes in three states of beating Trump. So you, all you have to do to be a woman and beat Trump is be better than Hillary Clinton. And that doesn't seem like the most impossibly high bar to clear. Um, so let, you know, maybe he said it. Elizabeth Warren has, has, this has been, you know, in the back of her mind, apparently since mid-2018. Like, how do you, if this really bothers her, you'd think she would have come out and said, I just had a conversation with my friend Bernie Sanders and he said something that really disturbed me. I haven't been this filled with tears since I saw that person littering. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that is what, like, you know, maybe, maybe this really did bother her. Maybe he really did say it. It's a little weird to keep this in your back pocket and have no indication that you have any problem with this whatsoever. And you've been a whole bunch of debates and it's been very clear. There's been this truce. There's been this non-aggression pact. They talk about how they have this great working relationship. They're friends, et cetera, et cetera. And then right before the debate, last debate for the Iowa caucuses, all of a sudden she remembers, hey, I almost forgot. Bernie Sanders said this thing that could really hurt him with women. I just feel this need to share it with you off the, on background without being quoted right before the debate and just to see what happens. You know, listeners know I'm not a big fan of either one of these people, but I really almost feel a little bit bad for Bernie Sanders because here is someone who keeps talking about what an ally she is, what a friend she is, who has just kneecapped him right before the debate. 
Um, you know, and she knows this is going to hurt him. She knows this is going to like he can deny it all he wants. Everybody would expect him to deny it. Warren, this this is probably going to stick to her or might shake uh, some Bernie Sanders supporters. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe everybody who's on the Bernie Sanders bandwagon isn't going to come off one bit. I would note that based on history, you know, in, in these primary fights, when candidate A attacks candidate B, it usually hurts both of them and benefits candidate C. And I think candidate C in this circumstance is probably Joe Biden, although maybe it's people that I don't know. So think about what Warren did here, right? She just, okay, she's uh, still in Iowa, still in New Hampshire. She's got a shot at them, but she's a couple of points behind the other candidates. You figure the internal numbers are looking kind of similar. This is, this is getting to crunch time. She, she really needs something to happen in the next couple of, of weeks. Otherwise, she's looking at two fourth place finishes and, you know, that's all she wrote. So she decides to go with this. And this is, you know, a two brute. You know, this this is you know really turning the guns on somebody who you think is your ally, and she has to know there's a chance this benefits Joe Biden. So, in other words, she would rather hurt Bernie's chances and end up with Biden as the nominee than have this turn into a two candidate race between Biden and Sanders. In the morning jolt. I use the reference from um, uh, Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight where he says, these people who say they're so civilized, they will turn on each other and they will eat each other. That's kind of what we're seeing in this primary. And I kind of feel like, you know, for somebody who never had a particularly warm, fuzzy uh, feeling towards Elizabeth Warren, I think we're seeing the real Elizabeth Warren here. That in the end, she's a much more vindictive and nasty person than she wants to let on with her schoolmarmish uh, personality here. And I, and I think if you're a Bernie Sanders fan, I don't know if you're going to let bygones be bygones. And if she ends up being the nominee, you're going to jump on board. I, I think this is really going to be seen as dirty pool, but uh, I guess time will tell, Greg. First of all, the fact, again, that she's got a really poor track record for telling the truth, whether it's about her heritage or what happened with her teaching job back in the 70s or any sort of uh, different issues that have popped up in this campaign. I, I don't think she's earned the right to be believed at first blush. Also, I do think she's uh, vindictive. I mean, who's more vindictive than the HOA person who keeps calling you out on stuff when uh, <laughs> she could just let it slide a little bit? And here's the third thing. And I think this has been an undercurrent in this campaign because after 2016, when Hillary didn't win, a lot of these uh, senators who ended up running for president really sucked up to Bernie Sanders, hoping to win his endorsement, never thinking for a second that at 78, 79 years old, he would actually run again. And then he did. So he never gave them the, the blessing to be his heir uh, to the progressive wing of the party. And he's still not only in it, but he's still getting the uh, amount of support that he got last time. And it's really ticking these people off who thought that was their lane. Yeah, just imagine how how easy it would have been to go the opposite direction, which is to say anybody in politics is going to disappoint you at some point or another. Uh, I am not a fan of subsidies for film production. I, I think they almost they they almost the economists will look at them and say they almost never pay off. Uh, usually, you give some sort of giant tax rebate to a film production crew. Most of the jobs are temporary. You very rarely end up turning New Mexico into the next Hollywood of the Southwest or something like that. But Bobby Jindal, one of my all-time favorite lawmakers, had a Louisiana film uh, a subsidy. And I thought it was a bad idea, but, you know, he did it. Do you let it slide from somebody who you consider to be an ally and a friend and all that kind of stuff? Or do you shiv them <laughs> when push comes to shove? And I think we saw something very clear from Elizabeth Warren here. She couldn't forgive this. She, you know, that's, This is all assuming that he said it. Um, like I said, the other possibility is he says something like, yeah, you know, a woman running against Trump can have some real challenges. You know, some milder version of the comment that no one could possibly like. Do we really want to think Bernie Sanders hates women? Really? Anyway, that's uh, we learned a lot about Elizabeth Warren. 
it confirms some of the, the worst suspicions, I think. Elizabeth Warren's numbers in Iowa are not what they were, and even nationwide, uh, they're not what they were. And so that's uh, one reason she's uh, looking to throw some sharp elbows uh, in the last few weeks here before the voting starts. But uh, she knows her numbers. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. A lot of business owners have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and on and on and on. It's just a big, inefficient mess taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and human resources instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies are using NetSuite to manage their business, and it's available to you as well. You'll learn how to optimize processes, drive operational excellence, sell across more channels, and much, much more. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide entitled Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash martini. That's N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Jim, it's an Elizabeth Warren-centric episode of the Three Martini Lunch today. Uh, Less so in the third martini, but uh, definitely at the center again here of our bad martini. Elizabeth Warren, as well as Bernie, uh, free stuff is what they're all about in a lot of ways in this campaign. And getting rid of student loan debt uh, is right at the top there for Elizabeth Warren. And now she says if she gets elected, hey, don't even need Congress to take care of this. Day one, I'm going to do this for you. CNBC, Elizabeth Warren said Tuesday that she would begin to forgive student loan debt on the first day of her administration using legal tools that would allow her to bypass Congress. The announcement, which comes just weeks before voting begins, adds urgency to legislation she introduced over the summer to cancel the bulk of the nation's outstanding student loan debt. That bill, introduced with uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, would forgive up to $50,000 in student debt for individuals with household incomes under $100,000. But Warren wrote in her plan on Tuesday that the U.S. Department of Education already has authority to cancel student debt and, quote, my favorite part here, Jim, we can't afford to wait for Congress to act, unquote. Uh, Jim, we saw this uh, a number of times in the Obama administration. Yeah, I know what the law says. I know what the Constitution says. But darn it, it's just too urgent. We can't wait to do this the normal way. The separation of powers is really inconvenient. The problems we face are too important to be let let the Constitution get in the way. Clearly, if America was built on any principle, it's that concentration of power in one person always works out okay. You know, I, I suppose we're now at the Oprah stage of the Democratic primary. You know, the idea of you get student debt relief and you get student debt relief and you get student debt relief. You know, uh, every time Buttigieg, Buttigieg uh, offers any type of, you know, hey, maybe we don't need to do this for kids and millionaires. You know, she, why aren't you dreaming big enough? Really kind of insufferable. She's turning into Santa Claus. She's turning into, you know, uh, offering every conceivable 
thing that anybody could ever want. On the one hand, it's kind of funny. On the other hand, it's a little bit depressing. Hopefully, primary voters will understand what this is not the way politics works. You don't try to just, you know, well, we couldn't get the vote, so we're just going to do it by executive power. Uh, unfortunately, nobody's all that interested in restricting power. When their party's in charge, then all of a sudden they get okay with it. You know, it's when their president of their party's in charge. Look, this is this is not how government works in the United States. You'd like to think people would wake up to this. Hopefully this doesn't work and doesn't, you know, if it salvages her campaign, everybody's just going to try to do the same thing. It'll be, you know, you get free health care, free education, free uh, preschool and a pony. Jim, I know you already know this, but uh, let's just walk through the impact if Elizabeth Warren actually tries to do this. And uh, especially if she were to actually get away with it. All of this, of course, being predicated that she's elected president, which at this point doesn't look overly likely. But you're a lending institution. You've lent out a ton of money to all these people going to pricey colleges, overpriced colleges, I would say. Then President Warren walks in and says, you know what? All that debt's forgiven. Don't have to pay it back. When the next student walks in looking for a loan to attend said Institute of Higher Learning, what's your answer going to be at that lending institution? Wait, Greg, maybe maybe we've judged this a little too fast. Wait a second. I mean, it would be a huge, you know, huge hit to taxpayers at first. But then all of a sudden, if everybody left the student loan industry and, and nobody wanted to loan anything to any kid to any kid, because, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're they're not going to have to pay it back and they're going to choose to, you know, decide to go into, you know, basket weaving or whatever other, you know, that could shake out pretty well. That, that all of a sudden, the, the complete collapse of all uh, funding that that, you know, all right, maybe there's a chance this could work. Is there a way we can skip that step, skip directly to that step and make people uh, uh, realize, oh, wait, this may not work well. The other question is whether the people who actually were responsible enough to pay off their loans were to get refunds. I'm sure she'd be wide open to that. I'm sure this is just a stepping stone to her free tuition plan, though. So it's uh, it's all it's all part of the plan. Yeah. At that point, would you have to like close down some universities? Oh, that'd be a shame. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. Real crime. We've got a lot of fodder now for tonight's debate, Jim, as we shift to our crazy martini. We've only got six people on stage tonight. It's uh, the killer bees of uh, Bernie, Biden, and Buttigieg, plus uh, Liz Warren. And then you've got uh, Klobuchar and Tom Steyer. There's no Yang tonight. Uh, Booker dropped out. So uh, we're down to six. It's uh, Lily White up there on the stage, which I'm sure they're all going to be very uh, mournful about. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this, Jim, because it basically means that uh, Democrats are accusing their own party of being racist over the fact that uh, people of color and other than Elizabeth Warren, all the women are out of this thing. Although Klobuchar is up there, too, I guess. Uh, so uh, what do you expect tonight in the Panda Olympics? You know, I do think at some point, first of all, the, the opening fireworks will definitely be Bernie versus Warren. And and Greg, I don't know about you, it's nine o'clock, CNN, you, I don't care if you hate democratic debates, pop the popcorn, this could get fun. Beyond that, I think a, a kind of a more, uh, you'll, you'll hear candidates lamenting this. I, look, I think the DNC, I think if anything, was pretty generous in their, you know, standards for these debates. You know, the first Threshold was 1% for the first two, and then they put it up to 2%, then put it up to 3%, then 4%. And this is kind of the participation trophy mentality of like, well, I'm in the race. Nobody supports me, but I still should be invited to get into the debate. I think the threshold is now 4%. 4%, that's that's really not that hard. You know, dear, uh, dear Democrats, you knew this was coming, right? You knew that at some point this was going to have to, uh, uh, you know, this, this field was going to have to narrow. And, you know, this is this is like any other competition, you know, uh, whether you want to call it the career to the bachelor uh, or any other reality. Like, look, eventually not everybody's going to be there. You need to demonstrate to everybody that you are the best at some point. 
you, you know, demonstrating the people that you're a pretty good choice isn't going to, at some point, it, it's just not going to work for you. Now, I wrote a lot about in today's jolt about, uh, you know, what it means that so many of these folks who are touted as rising stars in the Democratic Party, Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, Cory Booker, and I think you could throw in, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand, they all kind of flopped. Uh, didn't make it, you know, didn't even make it to the actual contests. Uh, you know, probably out of them, Harris had one or two good months, but then she kind of crashed and burned. And I think the lesson of this was one, you look at this level of support for Sanders, look at the level of support for Biden from the very beginning of this process. They've, you know, nationally, they've lost almost none. So in the end, almost half the Democrat, the Democratic primary voters pretty much knew who they wanted from the beginning. And you assume they've watched the debates. You assume they've paid attention to this process. If they were interested, they could have shifted around. Second of all, this claim that it's, that's, uh, that's racism that's driving it. Look, the number one candidate amongst African-Americans is Joe Biden. The number two candidate amongst African-Americans is uh, Bernie Sanders. And it's been that way for a long stretch. The reason Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are not up on that stage is because African-Americans were not interested in supporting them. Take it up with African-Americans. You know, you could say that uh, maybe they didn't get enough exposure or something like that. But really, in the end, I, I, I don't think African-Americans or Democrats were, were being foolish. I don't think they were being um, they weren't paying close enough. I think they knew they were in there. They just weren't all that thrilled with what they saw. This was a really weird cycle. Is it complicated by the fact that there are 20, I guess at one point I added up, there are 29 different candidates. It's really tough to stand out in this. And I think the other thing people forget here when they say, oh, goodness, how could so many of these minority candidates have not succeeded? How could many, so many of these, right? Hey, running for president is hard. Every cycle, one person wins, right? Every cycle, two people end up being the nominee. Beyond that, almost just like you know any other sports competition, you know the the people who don't win the championship feel disappointed with the end of their season. Bernie Sanders was disappointed by the end of the 2016 cycle, even though he did a heck of a lot better than anybody expected. Welcome to politics. Welcome to the way the process works. And so you know what? Hey, Andrew Yang, you've done a great job. Nobody expected you to come as far as you did, but you're not hitting that four percent threshold, so you're not up on that stage. Now he could stick around and still get some votes, maybe even get some delegates. Although I think it's going to be kind of a tough stretch there. The complaint that this is unfair would mean you have to have 10 people on stage through, what are we up to, like the eighth debate now, Greg? Oh, probably. We've had one every month since June. Like at some point, you have to have take pity upon the poor viewers, both of them. <laughs> you and me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We got uh, six left, and we still have three weeks left before the voting. I have a feeling these six will actually make it to Iowa, but uh, we will see. And then you got the ones who haven't made the debate stage, but... Uh, won't go away. I mean, Yang and Gabbard have been there recently, so it's understandable they would stick around. Poor John Delaney's going on almost three years now in this campaign, and the poor guy still hasn't gotten anywhere. Then there's others back there, too, like Bennett. So in any event, Jim, one more debate, and then we can actually count some votes. And who knows? We might actually know who won this year in Iowa. <laughs> may not come down to coin tosses <laughs> that all go for Hillary. What are the odds? <laughs> if they go for Hillary again this year, we'll really know it's rigged. But uh, enjoy the debate. Enjoy the popcorn. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget our friends over at NetSuite by Oracle, netsuite.com slash martini. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast either. Leave us a nice review if you please. And join us again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.